This is our final week in a sermon series called Explore God. So far, we've asked six big questions about faith and about Christianity. And this morning, we're closing out the series by asking a seventh and final question. Can I know God personally? But underneath this question is an even more basic question. And that question is, what is Christianity? Some say it's a philosophy. Others say it's a particular ethical stance. And then there's still others who say that it's an experience. But none of these things really gets to the heart of the matter. Each of these is something a Christian has... But none of them actually defines what a Christian is. You see, at the heart of Christianity is a deep-seated relationship between a person and God. And a person who becomes a Christian moves from just knowing about God distantly to knowing about Him directly and intimately. Christianity is Knowing God. But who exactly is this God? Who is He? And how does He want us to know Him? That's the question John is answering for us in our New Testament reading. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. And if you're new to the Bible, this can be a little confusing. We heard readings this morning from two Johns. Uh, the Gospel of John and the first letter of John. Right now, I want us to look at the first letter of John. It's at the very back of the New Testament, just a few pages shy of the final book, Revelation. So 1 John chapter 4, and listen again to verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, And knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John is revealing something to us here that makes Christianity utterly different from all the other religions of the world. Because to say that God is love is to affirm that God exists as Trinity. It's an ancient doctrine of the Christian faith. There is one God, and yet this one God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have known and loved each other for all eternity. And now it sounds strange, and it can seem a bit like a Rubik's Cube, trying to sort it all out in your mind. Uh, One of my favorite moments in church history is when a 5th century theologian named St. Augustine tried to sum up the Trinity in seven statements. So let's see if we can track with him. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. (laughs) The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. So that's six. And here's the kicker. There's one God. So strange? Yes. Um... Difficult, if not impossible, to fully comprehend? Yes. 
but so is physics. Those of you brave enough to have taken that can nod your head in agreement. That's fine here. But the point is, just because something feels like a brain teaser doesn't mean we should dismiss it. It's often those very concepts that make life possible to begin with. And it's the same with the Trinity. It's this incredibly complex Christian doctrine, and yet it lies at the foundation of everything. For our purposes this morning, we really don't need to make this overcomplicated. In order for love to be love, it necessarily has to have an object. It has to have a beloved, an other. Otherwise, it's not love, because love is about connection. And so it can only be what it is if it's directed outward, if it has the good of another that it's seeking. And here's the point. Lots of religions claim that their God is loving. But Christianity is the only religion that says that God himself is love. And that he's been that way for all eternity. So you see, a unipersonal God cannot be love. Allah cannot be love. The pantheistic God of New Age religion cannot be love because everything is really Him. And so loving anything is really just loving Himself, Herself, Itself. But the Christian God is tri-personal. He was love from the beginning. He was love from before the beginning. And here's where it gets intensely practical. This has enormous implications for human life. Because if behind the universe is merely an all-powerful, self-centered, unipersonal God, then the basis of all life is power. And that's what should be most important to us. And if power is more important than love, then we no longer have any basis for crying out against injustice. If the basis of all life is power, then we have no basis for demanding tolerance and equal rights for minorities. We have no basis for denouncing the racism of the 1950s and 60s. We have no basis for condemning the ongoing genocide right now in the Nuba Mountains. But if the beating heart of the universe is love, if before anything ever existed, God was giving and sharing love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if love is the eternal constant that gave rise to everything else we've ever seen or known, then the basis of all life is love. And this is something we know almost instinctively. I mean, how many people do you think lie on their deathbeds wishing with every fiber of their being that they had made more money? Or kicking themselves for not spending more time at the office? No, the most common experience by far, and you know this, is that people wish they had been more relational. 
They wish they'd spent more time with their kids or uh, held their wife's hand more often or been more present toward a friend. Now, why is that? It's because love is the most important thing in the universe. That's something our culture has actually, in a way, gotten right. It's just that Christianity is the only religion, the only worldview, for giving any basis to that value in the first place. You see, if you really think that love is the most important thing in the universe... If you think that relationships are more important than wealth, more important than status, more important than power and success, if you're the person that gets choked up every time the stereotypical workaholic husband in the cheesy Hallmark movie quits his job on Christmas Eve to spend more time with his kids, it's only the Christian God, it's only the Christian story that makes those other stories even remotely possible. And if we look at the beginning of that story, if we look at the beginning of the Christian story, we'll see that it's always been about love. So turn with me now to our Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. One of the things to remember about Genesis is that it was written in a pagan context. There were lots of stories going around in the ancient world that theorized about how the world began. Most of them had something to do with a war breaking out among the gods. The world was a prison and human beings were made to be slaves. But in Genesis, we don't see this type of thing at all. What we see instead is a God creating the world freely, taking an almost giddy delight in everything that he makes. And it all culminates in verse 26 when bubbling with excitement, this wildly inventive three-personed God shouts across the cosmos, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. It's as though he can hardly contain himself. It really is. It's as though the whole creation story comes to a screeching halt as this amazing God, out of love, out of this abundance of divine relational life, desires humans into existence. And why does God do that? It's not because he needed us. It's not because he was lonely without us. No, God's overarching purpose in creating us is so that we would know and experience his divine and intimate friendship. His friendship. Now, you might say that sounds heartwarming. How do we actually know that's the case? Well, we know it because of the way Adam and Eve fractured this friendship. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, you might want to flip there, Adam and Eve reject God. And we get a glimpse of the nature of their relationship with God when they hide themselves from him in the garden over shame for what they've just done. 
and we know something is very wrong, that something precious has been defiled because of God's question to them in verses 8 and 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? <laughs> and, and that might be the saddest question of the whole Bible. It was a deeply relational question, not so different from what a heartbroken spouse asks a wandering, relationally distant spouse. Or a heartbroken parent asks a withdrawn, prodigal child. Or a friend asks a friend who was once very close, but now is relationally cool and aloof. Where are you? Why is this distance between us? See, God had given them everything. Breath and life, food and water, beauty and work. But the most precious thing he had given him was himself. His own love and friendship. But now, Adam and Eve suddenly uncharacteristically, no longer wanted to be with God. They had cheated on him. They had rejected him and all they had once shared together. They had ceased to trust him. He was no longer safe. His very presence exposed their shame. They were choosing separation. And the story continues to this day. You see, each of us is designed for deep, experienced, intimate friendship with God. It's what we all long for most in the core of our being. But in those moments, when we become unsure of God's love and acceptance, or when we reject it as being either unreal or beyond our reach, we look for substitutes to fill the void. Some of us try to fill it by constantly chasing a fleeting romance. We cling to the newest prospect uh, and never let them out of our sight until they finally tap out. Others of us try to fill it by latching on to our children. We helicopter around them and smother them in the name of safety. We convince ourselves that they can do no wrong and we show our fangs to defend them if someone even thinks about breaching that. Once they grow older and have their own interests, we let them set the agenda for the day, for the weekend, and we follow them around wherever they go because our worst nightmare is that one day they might leave us all alone and outgrow us. And still others of us fill it by holding the friends we do have so tightly that they can't possibly move away or even bring someone else into the relationship for fear that it would utterly crush us. And all the while, we're miserable. Because in the absence of God's friendship, and the ocean depth of love and purity and peace and security it provides, evil begins to grow 
and take root within us. And as our identity becomes increasingly unhinged from God, we become increasingly and profoundly more selfish and intolerant, more fearful, more indulgent. And that's why Adam and Eve hid. And that ultimately is why our culture has made so many attempts to shut God out, to banish religion to the sidelines and kick the old man upstairs into the attic out of sight. It's our own Western, sophisticated, secularized way of hiding from God. We deny his existence or we say he can't be known. But that excuse can only work for so long because sooner or later we have to deal with the New Testament headlines that God has come looking for us. Turn with me finally to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. John begins his gospel in the most striking way with this God of love whom John calls the Word, walking once again in the garden of his creation and asking, where are you? He puts it like this. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is the heart, the center, the beginning and the end of the gospel, the beginning and the end of history. God, the eternal God, creator of heavens and earth, became like us in Jesus, a vulnerable, mortal human being. He became a fellow pilgrim and a brother, walking with us in our pain, walking with us in our isolation. Why? To bring us back to the very heart of God. But again, we rejected him. When Jesus came looking for us, he met fear and opposition. Many wanted to get rid of him. They clung to their security and power and refused change and openness. But even through this opposition, the plan of God is being fulfilled. Because through his death, Jesus reveals his love for us to the very end. Mother Teresa used to say that God is thirsty for our love. Uh, that when Jesus said from the cross, I thirst, he wasn't asking for a drink. Uh, but that he was in that excruciating moment expressing God's intense an unrelenting love for each one of us. Here was the awesome creator God, begging, panting in the most profound act of weakness for our love to be returned. Do you have the heart to deny him? Your God thirsts for your love. The one who needs nothing became nothing to ask once again for your friendship, the kind of friendship 
you were created for. The kind of friendship that ultimately satisfies. The kind of friendship that makes life worth living. In Jesus, God has begged for your love. In Jesus, God has done something totally beneath him in order to win back the treasure that he lost. And that treasure is you. It's you. With all your junk. With all your pride and your shame and your betrayal. God loves you with an unending love. He thirsts for you. So won't you give him a drink? So we've been exploring God. We've been asking the big questions, not in order to make faith easy for us, but to get to a point where we can really imagine entering into a personal relationship with God. But did you ever think about what that might actually look like? Walking with God is a lifetime journey. It's Not a one-time decision. It's more like what one pastor has called a long obedience in the same direction. It takes a lifetime. But how do you start? Let me close by giving you five steps. First step is tell God that you believe in Him. Tell Him that you believe in Jesus, that He died on the cross for you for your sins, and rose from the dead. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So tell him. This is wonderful news. Tell God what's happened in your heart. Second thing, tell God that you're willing to change the things in your life that have been keeping you from him. Tell him you've been hiding from him and that you're sorry. And then ask him to help you be more open to him now, from now on. Third, get baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is this amazing water ceremony that Jesus initiated in the New Testament called baptism. It's the very beginning of the Christian life. It's like a new birth. And when you're baptized, the Bible says that you get all these incredible gifts. God forgives all your sins. God adopts you as his son or daughter. And you receive God's own spirit to help you follow Jesus. So our church is is having baptisms on November 4th, two weeks from now. It happens during the worship service if you would like to be baptized. This is wonderful. You have time. Please talk with me or Aubrey after the service so that we can help you prepare and look forward to that. Fourth, join a church. The Christian life isn't meant to be lived alone. College students, this is important for you. There's nothing that can replace the church for as wonderful as these campus ministries are. Their purpose is to bring you into the church. The church is to surround you with other people who are wanting to follow Jesus, just like you. 
And that church can be our church. We'd love to have you. But there are lots of other great churches that you can join, that you can be a part of and start using and developing the unique gifts God has given you in that place and with that people. And fifth, start sharing everything with Jesus in prayer. He really is your best friend. So spend time with him. Read the Bible. There are these really helpful handouts on the back table that that tell you how long it takes for the average reader to, to read each book of the Bible. Just start somewhere. And then get quiet and learn the sound of Jesus' voice. Learn how to listen to Jesus in silence and in Scripture. Jesus came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. So come to him this morning. Come to Jesus and accept God's warm invitation for intimate friendship. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.